glad that you're here, whether you're joining us in person or online. Uh, I just want you to know, we're excited about next week. Next week is Easter weekend. We're going to have two services Saturday night, two services Sunday morning. And I know it's just been a couple of weeks since we fell forward, in, or spring forward in time. Fell forward is what it felt like. But you might want to next Sunday fall back about 15 minutes just to make sure you're on time for church, uh, because we will fill up and we'll have overflow, but we want to make sure that you are here. We are in the story, chapter 12 in the story, if you've been following along with us. If you haven't, we are in 2 Samuel, and so you can follow along with us that way as well. What we're going to talk about today, we're going to do this just a little bit different. We're going to talk about marriage, but not just marriage, but other family relationships too. So you may be thinking, well, I'm not married. This doesn't apply to me. The things we're going to talk about in the life of David today are good things for every one of us to, to know and to think about. Because if you look at David's life and his family life, he was messed up. His whole family was messed up. And it's not the kind of story you read to your small children at night before you put them into bed. It's, it's not the feel-good story. It's more of a, a reality television type of story. And so maybe you read through this story and you think, they called David a man after God's own heart? And David needed a lot of grace when it came to his home life, and honestly, so do we. And so when we look at chapter 12 today, we want to see his home life and what it was like and to look at his family and think about this question. If the walls of your house could speak, what story would they tell? Would they tell a story about laughter and joy or would they tell a story about constant fighting and angry words? And maybe you grew up in a home where you looked at your parents always fighting and you said to yourself, when I get married, it's not going to be that way at all. It's going to be different. I'm not going to yell like my mom yelled, but you yell. I'm not going to be distant like my dad was distant, but you find out you are. I'm not going to walk out, but you're thinking about or you have thought about walking out. If the walls of your house could speak, what story would they tell? Would they tell a story of commitment and courage or would they tell a story of broken pieces? Now, when you get married, we all stand before our spouse and we say, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, and we really meant that. But the story changes. There's some unexpected things that happen in the story. We didn't know about a pandemic and that he'd have a hard time keeping a job. You didn't know that she'd struggle with depression. You didn't know that your children would require so much attention and something changed. Something happened in this whole story. And the question is, what if the walls of your house could speak? Would they tell a story of commitment and courage or a story of brokenness and disappointment? Now, you thought it was going to be a love story. You, you knew life was going to be hard, but you knew the two of you together would make it through this, holding hands and, and sleeping together at night in each other's arms. And that would never change. And instead of the exciting love story you thought you were going to have, your life's turned out to be kind of boring. It's almost like your business partners or something. Your story is really about managing the household chores or hauling the kids around or paying the bills, and the romance is long gone. If the walls of your house could speak, what kind of story would they tell? Now, my guess is that if you asked David, he never would have imagined that his story would end up to be such a tragic story. In fact, his family was just a train wreck. And in 2 Samuel 11, it begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, but David didn't go off to war. 
It's springtime. He should have been fighting where the other kings were fighting out on the battlefield. But he probably just thought he wasn't really needed. Things are going really well right now. And so he decides to sit this one out. And he just stays at the palace while the army is away. And while he's at the palace one night, he can't rest. And so he decides that he's going to go up on the roof to get some fresh air and maybe watch the sunset. But he knows what he's going to see up there. I mean, it's the right time of day. And from the palace roof, you can see every other roof. And so what he's going to see there is women bathing. And there's Bathsheba, and she's beautiful. And he says to one of his servants, who is that? Who is that woman? The servant says, well, David, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know, Uriah, the one who has fought on the battlefield right next to you for years and years. Uriah, the one who's on the battlefield right now fighting for you. That's his wife. And David sends for her. The affair begins, and she becomes pregnant. David is desperate to cover up the sin and to try to keep this secret. And so he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, thinking that if he can get Uriah back home, then he will think and everybody else will think that it's Uriah's baby. Well, the problem is Uriah refuses to sleep in the bed. He refuses to sleep with his wife because he doesn't want to do that while his brothers in the army are off in battle, some of them dying. And so he just sleeps on the front porch. But David has to cover this up. And so he's got to make it look like his family is okay. He's got to make it look like he's doing nothing wrong. A lot of us walk through the doors of the church like that. I mean, to be honest, a lot of us walk through the doors and we want to make the impression on everybody else that everything is okay in our family. Your family may be messed up, but everything is just fine in our family. So we walk in with smiles. We all walk in together. But you know what? We've all got problems. So let me just take a little pressure off of you today and say there are no families represented in this building today who are perfect. We all have something that's going on in our life. We all struggle with one thing or another, but we want to maintain this illusion And so David decides that he's got to take this to another level, and he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with this document that he's supposed to give to the commander when he gets there. What Uriah doesn't know is that he's carrying his own death warrant. And so he gets to the commander, the commander gets the letter, he opens it up, and it's a note from David, and it says this in verse 15. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. And so David has Uriah killed, Bathsheba becomes his wife and moves into the palace. How did all this happen? We start to read the story and we go, this doesn't sound like something that should be in the Bible. How how does all this happen? And just when you're thinking that it can't get much messier, you start reading on. You read about Amnon, David's son. Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, David's sister, or David's daughter. Tamar tells her brother Absalom about what had happened. Absalom spends years trying to plan his revenge, and then he kills Amnon. That starts a civil war in the country between David and Absalom that ends with Absalom's death, and everything is falling apart. But how did this happen? How did David's family become such a mess? How, how did it all uh, fall apart like this? Have you ever seen one of those movies where they start with the last scene and then they go back? So you turn on the movie and you start to watch it and it's the last scene and it's dramatic, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to you until they go back and they see what happened before that led up to that part that was the last scene that was really shown at the first of the movie. I'll be honest, I get real confused in shows like that. But as you watch for the next hour and a half or so what happened before, then it comes back to that ending scene again, and now it makes sense to you. 
And so if we go back in this story, maybe we could see how David's life and family started to fall apart. And we have this one dramatic moment, David and Bathsheba, the affair, the cover-up, the rape, the death of a son, the civil war of a nation. It's a mess. But let's go back and discover where some of this started to go wrong. And I think that's important because for many of us right now, we're in this moment when things are starting to go wrong and we can't see it. We don't know it right now, but eventually everything's going to fall apart. And we're going to point back to this moment and go, this is the moment that things started to fall apart. So let's go back in David's life and we'll learn some things about him and we'll learn some things about us. 2 Samuel chapter 6. There's a scene there that you can't help but think... If this scene would have been played out differently, it would have changed the rest of the story. It would have changed the course of David's family life. Second Samuel chapter 6, David is married to his first wife, Michael. Now, I know a lot of people call that McCall, but Michael sounds so much more cool, and so we're going to call her Michael. It was romantic from the very beginning. Last week, we saw that David was about 18 years old when he went to the battlefield to take some food to his brothers. And he got there, and what he saw was Goliath is mocking the armies of the Lord. And David says, who in the world does this guy think he is? And he goes out to fight the giant Goliath. What we didn't talk about is that Saul had made this arrangement that whoever fought Goliath would be exempt from taxes the rest of their life, and they would get his daughter's hand in marriage. And so because David fought Goliath, he didn't have to pay taxes the rest of his life, which was a pretty big deal. And he'd get to marry Saul's daughter, Michael. But before he goes out to fight Goliath, this is what David says to Saul. The freedom from taxes for all my days is quite pleasing, but may I see a picture of Michael? He doesn't really say that. There's no pictures of Michael. But don't you know he had to wonder that before he goes out to fight? What is it? Who is it that I'm actually about to win? So he defeats Goliath, and as a result, he eventually marries Princess Michael, and he takes her as his wife. And this is really romantic if you think about it. He wins her heart. He wins her in battle. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel 6, there are are things that are going on that are really pretty good in the life of David. He, he's the king and thinks that the office are good. The nation of Israel is in a good place. The Ark of the Covenant has entered into the city and there's a great celebration. And David comes into the city with the Ark of the Covenant and it's a great day for the nation of Israel and he's celebrating. And in his celebration, he takes off his robe and the Bible says he dances with all his might before God. Michael, his wife, is watching from the window where she can see what's happening, and she's embarrassed by her husband's behavior, especially in front of these other women. And some of you wives know what it's like to be embarrassed in public by your husband. I understand that's something that happens very frequently, and so you can kind of understand how Michael must have felt. And that's what's happening here. David is embarrassing Michael. She's not happy about it. And here's what happens, chapter 6, verse 20. It says, when David returned home to bless his household, in other words, he's in a good mood. He's bringing that home with him. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, now notice the sarcasm here, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And so here he comes home from this great day of celebration. It's been a great day at the office. And the first thing she does is just let him have it. How the king has distinguished himself dancing around in his underwear is what she says. And David gives it right back to her. He gets defensive. He attacks her family. Which, guys, let me tell you, that is never a good thing to do. That's not really a good strategy when you're fighting with your spouse. He says it was before the Lord 
who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from your house when he appointed me rule over the Lord's, ruler over the Lord's people Israel. He's saying, that's the God I was dancing before. I will celebrate before the Lord. And really, it was a beautiful moment. David dances before God and gives God all the glory, but that's not the way Michael saw it. So the story ends like this in verse 23. It says, and Michael had no children to the day of her death. In other words, they didn't sleep together anymore. And that's the end of Michael. You never hear Michael talked about in Scripture again. But what happened? And why would the Bible even tell us this part of the whole story? Well, maybe if things would have gone a little different in that moment, it would have changed all the other moments that were to come. Maybe if David would have included Michael in the celebration. What if Michael would have encouraged her husband? It was a big day for him. What if when he walked in the house, instead of just attacking him, she just gave him a hug and and celebrated with him? What if David would have listened to his wife, tried to see things from her point of view? What if there were no personal attacks? What if David would have been more understanding about how Michael felt? What if someone would have said, I'm sorry? Or what if someone would have said, "I, I forgive you? What if David would have fought for the wife of his youth with the same passion and faith that he fought the giant Goliath? What would have happened to the rest of the story? Well, I'm convinced that the story of our marriages and our families is being written in those moments that seem insignificant in the day in, day out of life. And all those decisions ultimately write the story of our marriages and our families. Now, we, we, we see the big moments, and, and that's what we see with David's family, too. It was up there on the roof. It was the affair with Bathsheba. That's when everything fell apart. But what led to that moment is the cumulative effect, all the small everyday decisions in our home and marriage that ultimately write the story of who we are. But we don't think of it like that. We we tend to notice the one big event where everything fell apart, but there are things even right now that are leading to that event. I remember a few years ago playing disc golf with some of my friends, and we went to this disc golf course, and we noticed this tree, this big, ugly tree that we always hit. It was always right in the middle of our way. It had fallen down. Now, there had been a storm the night before, but on closer examination, you look, and inside that tree, you could tell it had been rotting out for years and years and years. So it may have been a wind that came by, but it wasn't really the wind that brought the tree down. It was all that decay and all the years before that. And I think that reflects how our marriages and families work. We see when the storm comes, but we don't sometimes go to the point of the deterioration of the family life before that. It didn't take much of a wind to blow it down. Someone described it like this. They said, in marriage, we give our spouse some kind of burden to carry, and they used a rock as an example. And we say to our spouse, you carry this rock, and because they love us, they're willing to carry that rock. And maybe that rock represents the fact that he's a workaholic. He's just working all the time. Maybe that rock represents his hot temper or his passive nature. And because you love him, you're determined to carry that rock that you've been given. Maybe the rock is much bigger. Maybe the rock is an addiction to alcohol or pornography. Maybe the rock is nagging or criticism. And you love your spouse and you say, I'm going to carry this. And mentally, you carry that rock. And you do that for a while, and and here's what happens. At some point, your mental determination to carry that rock is overwhelmed by your physical exhaustion. And you do your best for as long as you can, but at some point, the rock gets dropped and it just shatters. And everyone wants to point to that time where 
the rock dropped, that place where the rock dropped, and they say, what happened? How'd this fall apart? How did it come to this? But that's not the moment. It's that the rock has been carried for a long time. And so we ask our families to carry these rocks, and we think, well, they can handle it. They'll be fine. My spouse can handle the fact that I'm constantly out of town. I know she says we need more time together, but she's going to be fine. It's been this way for a long time. She can carry this rock. I know my husband can carry this rock of my criticism and my negative spirit. I know he wants me to be more positive and encouraging, but he'll be fine. He's been carrying this rock for a long time. I know my kids can carry the rock of us yelling at each other. They're fine. Kids bounce back. They'll be fine. And they are for a while. And they carry that rock for a while. But at some point, their mental determination to carry that rock is overcome by their physical exhaustion. And the rock gets dropped and it breaks. And so we stop at that moment. And we honestly look at some of the rocks that we've been asked by family members to carry. Because they're getting tired. And at some point, the rock is going to drop. Well, here in chapter 6, we can see some helpful lessons that can teach us how to deal with a day-in, day-out conflict that can lead to a falling tree or a dropping rock. And and I want to go over these lessons just real briefly, and then we'll be done. Number one, and remember, these are not just marriage. These are family relationships as well. Number one, identify what the issue really is. Now, it's hard to do that in the heat of the moment. But take time to identify what the real issue is. Michael just lays into David as soon as he walks in the house. And David immediately becomes defensive. But what would have happened if David would have just stood there and listened? Maybe the reason Michael felt that way is she wanted to be invited to that party. David got to do all this celebrating. She wasn't even invited. Maybe the reason she felt that way was she was feeling a little insecure. And David's dancing around with all these slave girls. And she just needed to be reaffirmed. Identify what the issue is. Is the issue really that your husband came home late, or is the issue really that you never know when he's going to come home? Or is it that when he does come home, he keeps checking his phone and making phone calls, and it's like he's still at work? Identify the issue. Second, find a good time and place for difficult conversations. While we're on the road driving, or while we're at the table eating, or while we're in bed at night, are places to encourage and to communicate. Instead, these often become places of criticism and fighting and conflict. So be intentional with that. As soon as David walks in the door, Michael just lets him have it. That was not the time or the place. I mean, if she needed to express some things to him, she should have found a better time and place to do that. And David should have been mature enough to say, hey, let's don't talk about this right now. Why don't we just sit down a little bit later and we can talk honestly about this? It's important to find the right time and place where you can set aside some of the emotion that you feel and really discover what the issue is and how to deal with it. Number three, stick to the issue. That's not what David does here. When Michael gets onto him, he immediately brings in the in-laws. He brings in the family, and he makes it worse by bringing in other people. We have the tendency to do that. We take the issue, and we make it bigger, and usually that's where everything starts to fall apart. And then finally, try to start with the positive. Now, I know that Michael didn't like David dancing around in his loincloth, but she could have found some way to encourage him. She could have said, I saw what you're doing out there. You're a really good dancer. I'm sure she wouldn't have said that, but find something that's really positive and look for that. It was a great day of celebration for David. He comes home. You know what he wants? He wants his wife to be impressed with him. So instead of being impressed, she's sarcastic and critical, and it takes the fight right out of him. 
He has no strength left. He's hoping for some encouragement. He wants that from his wife. He wants to impress her. He wants to win her heart, but instead she's critical. And some of you know what it's like to live with someone like that. Proverbs 21, 19 says, it's better to live in a desert than to live with a quarrelsome or nagging wife. If your wife likes to fight, she gets upset about everything you say, it would be better for you to walk out to the desert and just keep walking till you die instead of living in a relationship like that. Proverbs 27, 15 says, a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. It's like you're trying to waterboard your husband to get him to do what you want. And if you're constantly nagging your husband to get him to do what you want, it just does not work. Now, we're pretty rough on men, and we need to be pretty rough on men, because men, we have a huge responsibility that usually we don't don't carry out. We expect men to step up as husbands and fathers, be the leaders in their home, and be the spiritual leaders that God has called them to be, to love their wives, serve their wives, sacrifice for them, be gentle and humble, but to lead. But here's the truth that maybe we don't talk about as much as we should. Nothing will make a man passive more quickly than a wife who's critical and negative and discouraging. And so while we're calling men to be the spiritual leaders of their home, that's what the Bible asks us to do. We call wives and mothers to be the spiritual encouragers of the home, that that would be God's role in your life as a mom and a wife, to be a spiritual encourager to your husband and your children. And Michael comes to David. She's critical, sarcastic, and negative. But what would have happened if David would have just listened and then apologized? Because men, the Bible tells us that we are to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? Christ loved the church by reconciling himself to her. Jesus is the reconciler. He's the one who goes to. He's the one who pursues after. And it's on you, men, as husbands, to be the reconciler, to be the one who goes and says, I'm sorry. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I would say I'm sorry, but I didn't do anything wrong. Now, this is where you are missing the point. You have done something wrong in the past that you can apologize for. It's our role as husbands and fathers to be the reconciler. Well, yeah, but only 5% is my fault. 95% is her fault. Well, then apologize for the 5%. Don't say it like that. Don't say I'm apologizing for the 5% of this that's my fault. (laughs) But you apologize. You be the apologizer. You be the reconciler. You be the one who goes to her. You be the one who pursues a better relationship here. What would have happened to the rest of the story if David would have taken that approach? I think it would have gone a dramatically different direction. If the walls of your house could talk... Maybe the story they would tell is a story of conflict and brokenness and anger and disappointment and bitterness. But maybe it's time for the walls of your house to tell a brand new story. Because God would love for our homes to be a place of his grace, his mercy. God would love it if your home would tell the story of his redeeming power. God would love nothing more than if your homes would tell of his healing hands or what he can do to pick up the broken pieces, how he can put those things back together again. And so that's what we want to ask him to do as a church. You keep reading this story of David. What you find is that God uses this whole mess. David can't go back and do things different. But God uses this whole mess for his glory. And you get to the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1. 
Jesus is finally introduced, and this is a big moment. He's finally introduced. He finally comes on the scene. How is he introduced in Matthew 1.1? He's introduced as Jesus Christ, the son of David. You know, only God can do that. Jesus is the son of David. His family was such a mess, everything fell apart, but look what God did. And so our prayer should be, God, would you do for us what you did for David? Would you take the broken pieces of our families? Would you put them back together again for your glory? Would you redeem what we've made a mess out of? Would you redeem it for your good? It's not too late. We all need a time of brokenness when we come to God and we admit, God, we need your help. God, we need you to be the artist who paints our family portrait. We need the picture of our families to be clean and, and fresh so we can start all over again. Would you do that for us today? And it takes a husband who's man enough to say, I haven't been getting the job done. I, I've, I've been wrong here. I've been too passive. I need to step it up. It takes a wife who makes a decision to say, God, I, I want to be the encourager. I want to be supportive. But God, I need your help. I haven't done this very well. Would you help me? And it's easy for us to point fingers and blame someone else. But Lord, would you let us come to you and just say, help us? It's not too late. God alone has the power to take that pen and write a whole new story. And maybe for you today, what it takes is for you just to give him the pen, for you to say, God, here's my life. I've made a mess of it. Can you straighten it out for me? Would you do this? I need your help. I can't do this without you. And so when we offer this time of invitation, it's a time where you can go over to one of the decision point rooms. There'll be somebody there that'd love to help you in this to just say, I, I need you to pray for me or just say, I, I wanna become a Christian. Would you show me how I can do this? Show me how I can turn this over to God. And so today, if you need to make a decision or if you just need prayer, we invite you to come. Let's stand together and sing.